This is the Green Street News. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of experts here every week to keep you up to date on the latest environmental news and things that can impact your health and your community. Welcome back. By now, pretty much everyone knows not to hold their cell phone directly against their head. Despite the claims of manufacturers that everything is just fine, the science keeps popping up showing that exposure to the kind of radiation that comes out of cell phones isn't as safe as the engineers who devised our safety standards thought. Now, a new group of engineers is looking at cell phones and saying they could be made a lot safer. That story and Patty with the environmental news headlines all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Okay, Patty, so what are the headlines from the environmental world this week? The first one is important, and we'll talk about it, talk about why it is so important after. But the first one is from WBUR Radio, and it is entitled, Our Sewage Often Becomes Fertilizer. Problem is, it's tainted with PFAS. The Deer Island Wastewater Treatment Plant is a pollution success story. Over the last several decades, it transformed Boston Harbor from a nationally embarrassing cesspool into a swimmable bay. The treatment plant takes everything the people of Greater Boston send down their sinks, toilets, showers, and washing machines, plus industrial waste, and treats it. The treated water is clean enough to let out into the ocean. The remaining sludge gets recycled into fertilizer that's used in nearly 20 states. But now that fertilizer is raising fresh concerns. That's because wastewater treatment plants like Deer Island were not built to handle the toxic forever chemicals known as PFAS. The treatment process concentrates PFAS chemicals in the sludge and therefore in the fertilizer, mm. leading environmentalists and public health advocates to call for an immediate end to its use. Others are not sure that a full ban on sludge-based fertilizer or biosolids is the answer, but there is widespread agreement that we have only begun to grasp the extent of the problem. Heidi Pickhart, a Harvard doctoral student who is analyzing soil and corn from farms contaminated by sludge-based fertilizer, says, quote, I think we're only starting to discover how important biosolids are as a source of PFAS contamination. Most states have not even begun to test to see if biosolids that have been applied to land are contaminated, that soil is contaminated. I think if they go and look, they're going to discover that this is a huge contamination issue everywhere. This is a huge problem across the country because we're using a lot of these biosolids on agricultural fields. Yep. We're growing food, right? I mean, it's Exactly. Because thousands of consumer and industrial products from waterproof cosmetics to toilet paper to firefighting foam contain PFAS, the wastewater coming into Deer Island, like wastewater everywhere, is contaminated with the chemicals. Laura Orlando, a civil engineer and senior scientist advisor for Just Zero, which is a nonprofit focused on waste, says, quote, what gets into wastewater is just about everything that we use in our society because it's the pollution sink for what's out there, which is a big deal when we're talking about PFAS. Treatment plants don't remove PFAS from wastewater or sludge, and there's no easy or cost-effective way to do it. It's also not their job, end quote. Only the state of Maine has banned the use of sludge-based fertilizers altogether. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. first and only state to do so. Yeah, I heard about this. And a lot of farmers lost their farms. Oh, 
Absolutely. There there have been many articles about, you know, young people deciding to go into agriculture and, you know, these biosolid fertilizers are extremely cheap or even free, right? Because they're just trying to, the wastewater treatment plants are trying to get rid of it. And so they take it and they spread it all over these, you know, all over their newly acquired land. And then they can't sell what they are producing because it's so contaminated. And there's nothing, you you can't take this back out of the soil. No, 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 no. The commissioner of Maine's Department of Environmental Protection says, quote, it's like a nightmare you can't wake up from. Mm. People's homes and livelihoods have been destroyed, and the scale of the tragedy keeps growing with every sample that we take, end quote. So we're ruining our agricultural land. And can I just say, the companies that make PFAS are still pumping it out today? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you know, the, by and, the time. And I know that we've mentioned this before on the show, but the lifetime exposure limits from the EPA now are measured in parts per quadrillion. This is lifetime exposure limits. You know, David Carpenter, one of our great friends and a pioneer in the whole issue of environmental health, says, if a substance causes cancer, there's no amount of it that doesn't cause cancer. Oh, this is especially true for PFOS because yeah. it's because it is so ubiquitous. It's everywhere, and it's in small amounts in some places, and it's a you know fairly large amounts in other places. And we're exposed to it. All of us, all of us, are exposed to it every day. And why are we allowing this to continue to be made? I don't understand. Because it's making money. Okay. All right. What else you got? So this is from Yale School of Medicine. It's in their newsletter, written by Michael Mascadrelli. And the title is, Why Are Colorectal Cancer Rates Rising Among Younger Adults? Nearly double the number of young adults under 55 are being diagnosed with colorectal cancer, or CRC, than a decade ago, and more are dying from the disease, according to a new study from the American Cancer Society. According to the study, the disease now strikes one in five individuals under the age of 55. Dr. Xavier Lohr, medical director of the Colorectal Cancer Prevention Program at Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital, said certain lifestyle habits associated with CRC alone can't be causing this worrisome trend. He says that this most recent significant increase in CRC among the younger population is more associated with the patient's environment, including all sorts of exposures and diet. And so now I'm going to move to an article that talks about the work that Dukhan Lee, who is a doctor at Kaiser Permanente in Oakland, California, he's an epidemiologist, and he says that he wants to change the conversation on cell phones and cancer. Lee, who is a senior epidemiologist and veteran EMF researcher, that's an electromagnetic field researcher, believes that brain tumors have been getting too much attention at the expense of other types of cancer, notably colorectal cancer. Those born around 1990 now face four times the risk of developing rectal cancer and twice the risk of colon cancer in their 20s compared to those born around 1950, according to the American Cancer Society. Colorectal cancer is the most common cancer among men between the age of 20 and 49. Quote, known risk factors for colorectal cancer include obesity, an unhealthy diet, and lack of physical activity. But Lee doesn't think that they can resolve the paradox. He offers an alternative hypothesis. Young people's habit of carrying their cell phones in the front or back pockets of their jeans. 
quote, when placed in trouser pockets, the phones are in the vicinity of the rectum and the distal colon, and these are the sites of the largest increases in cancer, he said. When not in use, phones quickly go to standby mode and RF transmissions are greatly reduced. Yet, the phone stays active because the system must always know its location in order for the network to direct calls or texts to the nearest cell tower for delivery. Yeah, the phone is always searching for the nearest cell tower. This is especially true if you're riding in a car, because if you're traveling down the highway at fairly high speeds, you're going in and out of cellular areas, and the phone is going to be active. Right. And this every... is especially this is especially true of smartphones, which yeah. will, which are going to increase these exposures because of their need for quote regular location updates. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Very interesting. Very so, guys, interesting. get the phone out of your pocket. Out of the pocket. Ladies, tell your guys to get the phone out of their pocket. We don't want to see anybody walking around with a cell phone in their pocket. It's just a stupid, or against your head. A stupid thing to do. And as the or manufacturer against... of these phones say, okay, in the legal section at the very bottom under radiation exposure, it says, do not hold this device against your body. That means not against your head while you're talking and not in a pocket. Our whole show today is going to be about cell phone radiation, so yeah. stick around. Okay, what else you got? Okay, I have one more, and this was published in the Washington Post, written by Dr. Liana Wen, and it is entitled, Healthcare Itself is Worsening Climate Change. One Small Switch Can Help. Physicians, nurses, and other frontline providers know firsthand the health impacts of climate change. Air pollution exacerbates asthma and emphysema. Extreme heat worsens heart and kidney conditions. And rising temperatures increase the occurrence of a wide range of illnesses, including mosquito-borne infections and depression. That's why it is so shocking to learn that healthcare itself is a major contributor to climate change. In the United States, the healthcare sector is responsible for around 9% of the nation's greenhouse gases. Researchers estimate that the environmental harm caused by medical care ultimately costs as many lives as preventable medical errors, which are responsible for as many as 98,000 deaths annually. Holy Christmas, that's yeah, a lot. That's a lot. This is in direct conflict with the mission of the healing professions. Anesthesiologists turn out to be the right launch pad for this discussion. That is because some anesthetic gases commonly used in operating rooms are extremely potent greenhouse gases. Healthcare Without Harm says that the elimination of one specific gas, desflurane, could make a profound impact. Desflurane has the global warming potential of over 3,700 equivalents of carbon dioxide. It lasts for 14 years in the atmosphere. Healthcare Without Harm is among those that have been urging healthcare systems to move away from desflurane and switch to sevoflurane and isoflurane anesthetics that are clinically equivalent but have a small fraction of the environmental consequence of desflurane. One anesthesiologist, Brian Chesborough, who is based in Oregon, says that we still keep one or two desflurane vaporizers so someone could use it if they really need it, but it is no longer at arm's reach in every operating room. He believes this was more effective than banning the gas. Instead of creating adversaries, we created an army of advocates who are eager to partner with us. We've cut emissions related to anesthetic use by 95%, and because desflurane is a more expensive option, we've also cut the financial cost by 80%. So why wouldn't every hospital do this? It seems to save them money and... and it saves them money, and they're eliminating an anesthesia that is comparable to other anesthesias. It's not like it's something special that you need to have it. Does it surprise you that the healthcare industry accounts for 9% of global warming? 
No, that doesn't surprise me. Not at all. Okay. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. There's a strange dichotomy going on these days. Everyone has a phone. Lots of people are literally attached to it, using it hundreds of times every day to check messages, send texts, or see how many likes their Facebook or Instagram post had received. At the same time, there's a gnawing awareness that our phones and other things that give off radiation are not completely safe. Maybe people know that the current U.S. safety standards for phones were developed by microwave engineers back in the 1980s and may not be all that protective. Maybe they know someone who held a phone against their head for hours at a time and now has brain cancer or a parotid gland tumor or some other kind of cancer regularly associated with cell phone radiation. Some people have probably even read the details of the warning inside the phone that says something like, do not hold this device against your body. So we live with this uneasy feeling. We love our phones, can't imagine living without them, but we don't want to risk our own health either. So what to do? Good scientists know that our understanding of the world and how it works is temporary, subject to new ideas, new discoveries, and new theories. The whole idea of science is to explore, to learn, to discover, not so much to declare, insist, and be dogmatic about it. Well, last week, a group of highly respected scientists and engineers from the International Commission on the Biological Effects of Electromagnetic Fields, ICBE-EMF, published a fascinating and detailed report explaining exactly how cell phones could be made a lot safer, designed to dramatically cut the amount of radiation we receive while we use them. Knowledge is evolving continuously. so. If ideas are evolving, shouldn't our cell phones evolve as well? That's Dr. Paul Haru, a founding member of ICBE-EMF and lead author of this new report. Dr. Haru is professor of toxicology and health effects of electromagnetism at the McGill University Health Center in Montreal, with more than 30 years of experience in engineering, physics, and the health sciences. His wide experience gives him a unique perspective on the issue of radiation and human health. As Dr. Haru explains, much of the research on RF radiation and human health was originally done by the military. A lot of the people who were involved in the early studies on radiofrequency radiation had their background in the military. And the military has fine means, financial means, to investigate technical problems. I remember in the early days, they were the ones who were providing the funding to translate all the Russian research and publishing them as information ventures. They, they created a bunch of books. They wanted to really know what this radiation was about. But the, the military also have a philosophy, is that you will win wars if you have great telecommunications and you will not lose wars because of cancer. In other words, chronic diseases don't have too many impacts on your ability to win a battle. The military 
have as their premise is that their duty is to protect the nation and they recognize that electromagnetic radiation carried risks, but they were willing to accept them. The question is, should your daughter in the fourth grade in school accept the same risks as a pilot in an F-16? Or should you accept this risk of radiation being exposed continuously to this radiation over uh, 75 years? In the early days, you see, radiation was used in the military you know, for a certain purposes, under certain circumstances, by a restricted group of people. Now, it's in the hands of everyone on the planet. Most people assume that the government is testing all the cell phones, routers, antennas, and other wireless equipment that permeate our world, but they would be wrong. Manufacturers do the testing and verify that their equipment meets the three decades old safety guidelines of the FCC. But do they say it's safe? Actually, they never say that. They can't. In the 1930s, if you had a billion dollar ship sailing the Atlantic, the only way to see that planes were coming to sink your ship was a pair of binoculars and a very awake mariner. But after radar, everything changed. And in fact, talking about the health effects of electromagnetic radiation in the United States was widely seen as unpatriotic because you had to win the race against the Soviet Union. So this is the context. Industry took the baton from the military. The military had had such a, a, a love for uh, electromagnetic radiation. Industry thought, maybe we can get the same deal. And so essentially, they used the military standards and they thought, let's push to get exactly the same thing by essentially maintaining that the only effect of this radiation is a thermal effect. This is scientifically absolutely untenable. And so no scientist who is worth his salt, who knows about biology as well as about microwave ovens, would defend this idea. If you look at a cell phone today, it is truly a work of art. Actually, it's a work of engineering, but you can tell that huge efforts have been deployed to make this object as sophisticated and as useful as possible. I feel that they're a jewel, but I don't turn them on because, firstly, I think I don't need them as much as you think you need them. And secondly, I think the radiation is unhealthy. It's a little bit like air pollution. You spread this all over the place. You might not realize immediately that this is deleterious to your health, but in fact, it is. As Dr. Haru mentioned earlier, the industry is desperately trying to hold on to the theory that the only effect of radiation from a cell phone is heat. But that theory is beginning to crumble under the scrutiny of some of the top epidemiologists in the country. If you look at the demonstrated effects of this radiation, what are they? 
there's a big controversy and a lot of research has been done in particular by Leonard Tadell, which is one of the co-authors and Joel Moscovich, who is also a co-author on cancer as connected to these devices. I think these people are great epidemiologists and they have done very, very good work. And Talim Miller, who's also a co-author, got the Order of Canada for his work on cancer. So those are not randomly picked epidemiologists. They excel at what they do. They claim that this will increase your risk of acoustic neuroma. And as the article describes, the ways in which these objects are assessed for the radiation that they inject in your brain have been done, I would say, not in a negligent way, but not with an eye of trying to assess the effects of radiation. And the second thing that is very deleterious about this radiation is that there's a lot of evidence that this radiation, when you apply it to biology, generates reactive oxygen species. And I know exactly how this happens. It's not a mystery. So when industry tells you that there are no mechanisms that we understand by which this radiation acts. It's a pure lie. This is totally inadmissible. Reactive oxygen species. It's an unstable molecule, a free radical, and a buildup of these molecules in a cell can damage DNA and even cause cell death. That's how many scientists believe RF radiation causes biological harm, even at levels currently considered safe by the FCC. Even the courts in the U.S. have recently said that, indeed, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, has not looked at the recent literature on, on this question. Why? Because they do not want to. So, getting back to the ICBE EMF report, what about developing phones that emit less radiation, that are safer for people to use? Is it possible? And how would that work? We have good friends in Brazil who are what I would call stellar quality electrical engineers. In other words, we have a number of electrical engineers in this group, and they looked at the literature, and they looked at what could be done. They spent a lot of time doing simulations on where the energy from a cell phone ends up. And these brilliant people are telling us that with small modifications to the cell phone, you can make them radiate away from the head. Right now, most cell phone antennas are 3.8 lambda antennas, simply little wires, or are printed on a circuit board. Uh, these so-called uh, inverted F and so on. They're simple shapes, but they tend to radiate electromagnetic energy in most directions. So what they're talking about are special types of reflectors that would block the radiation in one direction. And so the brain in particular would be protected in this way. Dr. Haru and his colleagues also raise questions about phones that are being optimized for artificial intelligence so that the phone thinks for itself. Maximizing the activity of a cell phone through artificial intelligence, that the this, that this cell phone thinks and acts by itself, 
not only relieves you of the command of your cell phone, it also generates signals that are under the control of others and you are being irradiated under the control of others. So as science continues its inexorable march toward a deeper understanding of how the radiation from cell phones and other wireless devices affects our body, a growing number of scientists, including Dr. Paul Haru, are advocating for industry to address these growing concerns. So what we're saying is, hands off our private identity and property. Do not irradiate us using the device that I paid for against my will. Even in airplane mode, some functions in cell phones are not deactivated. We want airplane plus, where we have a guarantee that we're not being irradiated. So then I can safely place this phone against my body without any fear. And if I happen to be an electrosensitive person, this object is now tamed for my use. No object in technology is perfect. However nice the cell phones are, they can still evolve. And we're not saying that people should not have cell phones. We're saying that the safety of this object should evolve with science, with the times, and become increasingly, increasingly compatible with human biology. What we really want to happen is a real discussion. But industry, in a sense, has many, I would say, meters of advance over uh, health. When you deploy technology, inevitably, it's much slower to find what the impacts of it are. What this means is that commercialized products take the elevator while science takes the stairs. So we, we have to catch up, in a sense, and all we're trying to do in this group, ICBEMF, is to protect your health. We don't have any interest in selling you anything. We just want to keep you safe and to make sure that you use the best telecommunications available. Dr. Paul Haru, a founding member of the International Commission on the Biological Effects of Electromagnetic Fields, ICBE-EMF, and the lead author of a new study showing how the levels of radiation emitted by our cell phones could be cut dramatically without affecting performance. The only thing standing in the way is public opinion. So the next time you go to get a new phone, ask to see the ones with the lowest radiation output. It's consumer demand that will eventually drive progress on this. You can learn more about the International Commission on the Biological Effects of Electromagnetic Fields at their website, icbe-emf.org. Again, it's icbe-emf.org. That's going to do it for our show today. A very special thanks to our friend, Dr. Paul Haru, for joining us on today's show. To our engineer, Josh Lyman, our social media manager, Donna Moss, our news editor, Toby Ziegler, and our marketing director, Patricia Bridges. If you enjoyed the show today and think more people need to hear this information, tell your friends about Green Street News, won't you? 
They can tune in on Friday afternoons to WBAI 99.5 FM in New York or catch us all the time everywhere on all the major podcast platforms. Just search Green Street News or visit our show website, greenstreetnews.org. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening.